Internet outrage has destroyed the way we communicate. Everyone's angry, everyone's cancelled, and nobody is allowed to think for themselves. So we're here to fix that. Welcome to Subtweet This. Hey everyone, what's going on? My name is Gothics and welcome back to another episode of Subtweet This. Today we have a special guest, Clifton Duncan, an actor, by the way. Hello, Clifton. Hello. Hello. Hello, everybody. He's like, I just woke up. I did. I woke I woke up just like this. It's But it's a pleasure to meet you all. Thank you for having me and taking the time to talk to me on this incredible Sunday. Oh, yes. Fabulous. So... Listen, for those of, uh, that don't know who you are, tell everyone a little bit about yourself. Oh, uh, well, sure. Uh, my name is Clifton Duncan. Uh, I've been an actor for 20 years. I spent 15 of that uh, in New York. I graduated from the New York University Graduate Acting Program, which is a very prestigious uh, conservatory. Uh, it's given us some alumni, such as Denai Gurira, uh, Sterling Brown, and Mahershala Ali. They went to the same program. Uh, we, we weren't there at the same time, uh, but I worked on Broadway, off Broadway, um, at the top theaters around the country, uh, guest starred in uh, several television series, um, you know, some award nominations. I, I don't talk very much about about my acting. It's sort of like, you know, it's it's my job. But it is funny to me when people uh, online try to be like, well, you know, you're just some mediocre person. It's like, well, no, you can actually I have the receipts. You can Google <laughs> you know, Could you reviews just- going back almost 20 years of, you know, of, of notices, you know, from the New York Times or Entertainment Weekly or any of these other, um, any of these other, you know, I guess we call them legacy media outlets that, uh, that we love so much right now. Yeah. Uh, so, um, you know, I've, I've got a pedigree. I've got, uh, you know, I've done well for myself and then everything shut down. So now, I, so now am I in a different city that's not New York and, uh, you know, starting my life, uh, I feel like I'm kind of starting over in a, in a, in a weird sense, but we can get into the reasons why, uh, yeah. later on, wait, if wait, you choose. Could you, wait, hold on. Could you tell us some of the Broadway shows that you've been on? Maybe I might have uh, seen so, one. Right, well, I don't know if you've seen it, but I did a, a beloved British comedy called The Play That Goes Wrong. Um, the, the, the British Goes Wrong. Right, right, right. So it, it's a, um, how do I explain it? It's a, it's a British uh, farce. So people will call it uh, low comedy, but it was quite sophisticated. It, it was created by um, this British troupe, and it went on to the West End, basically. Then J.J. Abrams saw it, and he decided he wanted to bring it to Broadway. Um, so the British cast and the creators did it for about six months, and then they brought in an American cast that replaced them. And uh, so I was uh, part of the American cast, you know, full full accent and everything. And um, we ran for a long time, but then I injured, I injured myself, um, and I had to leave. Uh, so... That is uh, my main claim to fame. I can give you a long list of Broadway shows that I almost got in, but did not get. Oh, um, wouldn't that hurt? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> we don't well, need those reminders. Well, that's well, that's kind of part of the industry. You know, people. I feel like a lot of people uh, really underestimate the uh, the luck factor. You know, I mean, Hugh Jackman was not the first choice for Wolverine. There was somebody that wasn't available, um, and you know, and Hugh, who who himself is a great performer, um, you know, slotted in there. So. We're all at the casino, essentially. At a certain point, um, everyone is gifted. Everyone is talented. I mean, the fact that it took Mahershala uh, Ali so long um, to, I think he got out of NYU in the early 2000s. And so it's only been within the last few years that we've known who he is. No one knew who Morgan Freeman was until he was in his 40s. So, you know, there's, it's a long game for a lot of people. And I think people don't realize that, you know, every time you get an audition or an appointment or whatever, you're, 
you're you're almost purchasing a lottery ticket or you're going up to you know the tables and or you know or the slot machine or whatever and um, you know and, and some people people don't want to face this but you know there are brilliant people that you have never heard of and that you never will hear of and we all know that there's tons of mediocre people that have careers so you know it, it's a it, it, it's not as cut and dry as oh you know are you talented or are you not um, you know a lot of it is just it's just straight up tenacity it's a game of attrition or a war of attrition and those who stick around longest uh, tend to reap the most benefit. I hear that. That's such a great take or interesting one. Uh, yeah, with it being like a lottery because that is true. A lot of people I feel like it just takes like you know that one role and it's just like okay wait this person's been around for a long time. That's always exactly. what it is. That's all, you know, yeah, it's, it it's one, it's one job that, you know, there are some people, I mean, I have a classmate who, you know, won a Tony award a year after she got out of school. I have another classmate who left and, you know, she's a pretty white girl. So we, we know, we, we knew she was going to be all right. <laughs> but, but it's, you know, I, I have the, the sort of numbers I have in my phone, people I can text, you know, it's at a certain point, you know, especially within the past few years, you know, I, I I'm, I'm starring across, you know, Tony winning actors and movie stars and doing workshops and readings. And at a certain point, it's like, you know, these are all people. They're extraordinary people or they're extraordinarily gifted at, at one or two things. And we like to watch them, which is why we pay time and money to see them. But at a certain point, you're just like, all right, yeah. like, we, you know, it, it, everyone's good at a certain level. And, you know, you the person you're shaking hands with or, or condescending to today, you know, in the next week, they can book that television series or that movie role that starts everything off. So it's, it's a very bizarre um, industry that's not necessarily uh, it doesn't really uh, honor merit as much as one might might hope, which might explain some of the political leanings of much of the industry. Yeah. So you, you actually, segue, actually, you actually said you you you, you said a, f a few things that I want to actually touch base on. So first of all, you did say that you don't normally talk about like the fact that you act because it is your job. Um, is is acting like something that you have always wanted to pursue, or were there other things that were on the along the way? Well, I'm, you know, it's sort of a theme in my life. I'm sort of an odd duck and an outsider in many ways. So you know, th there's I I my life would have been so much easier and, and less uh, full of strife if I had been someone who was like, oh my God, I saw a production of Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat when I was six years old and I just had to do this for the rest of my life. Like, I'm not one of those kids, you know? Like, I'm, you know, I was going to be an illustrator and I was into music and a little bit of writing, you know, fiction and nonfiction. Um, I mean, I was an artsy kid and um, then it just, long story short, it just turned out that I was sort of good at it. I never had stage fright. Um, it was never a thing that bothered me. I mean, I've seen kids break down and cry on just from being on stage. You know, that was wow. never a thing for me. It was sort of like a, a duck to water. And um, it took me a long time, actually, to become comfortable calling myself an actor because, I mean, let's, let's be real. I mean, it's not really a respectable profession that's highly regarded. I mean, let's, let's be real. It used to be, you know, uh, I want to say back in the 1600s, we weren't even allowed to be buried in the same cemetery. Right. Or in a regular cemetery with regular people, so you know it, it's 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 an it's an, uh, a profession that has a low entry point. Um, there is there is a skill and a craft to it. You know the analogy I make is that some people learn how to build houses. I learn how to build characters. Um, so there there is a technique to 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 constructing it, and there's a reason why people like Tom Cruise or Denzel Washington have been around for so long because they're just masters at what they do. Um, but you know, it's, it's, 
I, I'm somebody who um, I, I guess I, I don't think that I'm super special for, you know, for doing what I do any more than I think, you know, if you're an agri- agriculturalist or a doctor or whatever, I think it's cool that, you know, if, if you have that skill set, but I don't think that you're some sort of special mighty individual that should be anointed above the rest of us. And I think a lot of, I think a lot of actors um, and part of it is the culture of the industry. I think, you know, we, we are, at least the the school that I went to, you know, it's very much, you know, we are, we are actors and we are uh, we are artists and citizens of the world who are, you know, sort of on the outside and we're making commentary on on the, the broader society and that's our our duty as artists and and you know there is some there is some efficacy to that and, and you know when you talk about you know say Dadaism or postmodernism as an artist or a creative person it is useful to be able to think outside the box in those terms but. At the end of the day, you know, I just feel like, you know, I'm, I'm just I'm just a guy. I, <laughs> I'm a guy who I like speaks, that who speaks well. And, um, you know, I have a particular was supposed to Liam Neeson quote, you know, I have a particular set of skills, <laughs> and, um, you know, and that and that's that's what I do. And, and I happen to enjoy it. And, and I happen to be fortunate enough to work more than most actors do. I mean, unemployment is a is a feature that a bug um, in this industry. And I've had I've since moving to um, to Atlanta, that, I mean, that's the first time I've needed need to have a, a quote-unquote regular job in um, almost in over half a decade. So I've been very lucky um, in, in many respects. But it's not something that I, I, I just, I, I don't think it's that big of a deal. I also don't like bragging and boasting about, um, about myself either. So yeah. that's why I don't talk about it that much. Well, the reason <laughs> that I asked, and it also uh, ties into my next question, is because I do see that uh, a lot of these like non-conventional jobs, right? You got like maybe a live streamer or an actor or a singer. I feel like a lot of people specifically in the minority spectrum may feel like these fields are harder to get into. And you did say that there was a girl that uh, was in school with you and you said, oh, well, she's white. She'll be fine. So do you find that that is something that is true in the acting sphere is it harder for for black people to make it well you know this is a question that i've that i've really been <clears throat> wrestling with you know what 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 role does and has my race played in terms of my career and i i, I think on balance for someone like me it's actually benefited me more than than uh, that it's held me back but the thing about me is that my my skill set you know i mean i've always been someone who's been uh, I've never been uh, put off by language or complex language. So if you're talking about Shakespeare or, you know, Moliere or the Greek tragedies, which we call heightened texts, um, you know, those don't, those don't bother me. So um, I also am a singer. So I, I, if I'm, you know, if, (laughs) if the the latest Tyler Perry movie isn't casting, I can still carry a Broadway musical or a Shakespeare play or, or British or a restoration British comedy, you know, with equal aplomb. And that's, that's my skill set, And that, that's what, that is what has allowed me to remain as employable as I've been in my, in my estimation. So when I see people that are complaining that, you know, the industry is stacked against them, I think to myself, well, you know, like my own experience has been, well, when I wanted to do a musical, I, 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 you know, I worked on my, um, I, I worked with a singing coach and uh, then I, that's when I began to establish myself as a, as a singing actor of note in New York City, which is not easy to do. There's a lot of unbelievable people in that city. When I wanted to work more on camera, um, I focused more on that and improving. And I went from zero guest stars in one year to guest starring for three of the major broadcast networks. So it, 
my my skill, my philosophy has always been: if you want to do something that you work on, you work on improving at doing it. So if you know if you have an accent or some kind of regionalism, or if you're or if the way that you speak isn't quite as polished, you know, work on that stuff because then not only will it open up your access to you know the great Shakespearean canon or or other other types of uh, roles you wouldn't necessarily be uh, up for, but in the TV realm. You know, if you're able to handle Shakespeare, then when you're handed a piece of, you know, when you're handed a piece of, uh, of, of material from a legal drama or a medical drama, which has a lot of complex jargon and language, you're unfazed by it. And on top of that, you know how to activate it and make it interesting and compelling. Um, so, you know, my attitude is just do the work and put in and put in the time. If you know what you're doing and you're trained and you've put in the time to, to hone your craft, uh, then... You know, my opinion is that the sky is the limit. I mean, the only thing is that, you know, we know we live in a, a white majority country and the industry is going to to reflect that. But I think that's less of a factor now because and I think the industry is really slow in catching up to this. Uh, you know, the, whatever the old model was, of, you know, there was a system and there's television and there's Hollywood. I mean, I think that's sort of dying now. I mean, we all have smartphones. You know, we, we can get ring lights. We can get decent um, audio uh, material or equipment and make our own work. So I guess to, to answer your question more succinctly, it, it's I, I think it is a factor. It's hard to tell how much it is, but I think it's less of a factor when you put in the time and the work to make yourself as hireable and as, and as employable as, as you can be. But I think it's less of a factor now because you don't really necessarily have to wait for the quote unquote industry to notice you. I mean, Issa Rae, you know, did her web series um, on YouTube before she got picked up by Shonda Rhimes, you know, so I mean, Tyler Perry and people have lots of criticisms about the, the his content and, and, and his material. But he has a billion dollar studio right now here in Atlanta and, you know, he's still working. So, right. you know, th there are people that are making their own their own way. I mean, look what Shonda Rhimes has been able to do as well. She's one of the most powerful women in television. So people are, are for all the people complaining that they can't make it. There seem to be a whole lot of people who are busting through um, and doing just fine. I'm, I'm someone who made the decision back in like 2007 that I was never I was going to stop using my race as a crutch. And I think that really changed my trajectory in a lot of ways, politically, personally and professionally. So, so I was going to ask, like, on on top of that, with you being uh, a black man and saying, and you're, you're pretty much saying, like, your color has not prevented you from getting any roles. Has have you ever, like, um, how can I, I don't even know how to phrase the question? Have you ever been in a situation where, like, you approach for a particular role because of your skin color? Like, were you stereotype casting? Like, oh, we're looking for a black man from the age of X to X to portray this kind of character and stuff. Like, did you ever see yourself being called for those roles because of your uh, skin color? Yeah, but it's not. This is what I mean by I feel like it's been an advantage for me because it, it's weird because it's not that they're looking for, you know, I mean, like the, the, the old argument is. You know, all they see us as are thugs or criminals or whatever. So those yeah. are the only roles I can get. You know, I don't know if any of you have seen um, Robert Towns' Hollywood Shuffle, a movie made in the 80s. If, if you if you haven't, I highly recommend it because it's hilarious. Um, and it's just a spoof where, you know, Robert Towns is playing an actor, you know, in Hollywood in the 80s. And he's, you know, grappling with, uh, you know, a, a racist industry. And I'm not, I'm not going to spoil it. But, I mean, there's there's some great skits about, like, you know, black acting school and all kinds of all kinds of things. But... I think that's that's an argument that's, you know, 20, 30 years old now. I think the for, for my money now, it's less about stereotyping and it's more about the people who are doing the producing and the casting saying, oh, we want we want a black person here. And it's less about 
leaving to add a little bit of nuance to it. I know we hate nuance these days, but I mean, it's, it's, it's definitely better than the alternative of, well, we're just not going to pay any attention at all to these people. But then on, but then on the other hand, it's, it's sort of strange where it's like, well, you know, we're specifically looking for a black person to fill this role because we feel like we need to put a black person in this role. You know what I'm saying? Like there's a, there's this attitude where, (laughs) <laughs> I need a, I need a black, you know what I mean? So like here. <laughs> yeah, and, yeah. and, you know, and, 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 and it's nice that they're, that they're looking out for us in that way. But from my, from my perspective, what tends to happen, and this is where these sort of, the sort of progressive ideology kind, kind of uh, clashes with itself because, you know, there, there's like, you know, like for instance, there's one role that I, that I read for what's like, you know, I'm, I, I go in for a lot of military guys, you know what I mean? And, FBI or, you know, you know, combatants, you know, these kinds of things. And you know, there's the one scene. Yeah. yeah. You know, I mean, it's, which is, which is kind of fun, but then you read these roles where, you know, you're, you're, you're this character and, you know, they're intelligent and they're assertive and, you know, and they're complex. They have all these things, but then they get into a fight with, you know, the five foot three, uh, uh white co-star and they get their ass kicked. So it's like, okay, you're pushing the the girl power aspect of it, which you know is is fine, I guess. But then at the same time, you're emasculating this black male character, and that's been one of the complaints for decades now. Is that you have these these sort of dickless, um, uh, you know, Gordon Good brothers who are just kind of there holding space to make you know whatever to make the producers feel better about themselves, and that they're earning their their I guess their liberal bona fides by having a black person there, but there's, there's rarely nuance um, there. And if you try to, in, in, uh, if you try to inject some, you know, it's like black is not, is, is, is too broad in general. Is, is this person Sudanese? Are they Nigerian? Are they Jamaican? Are they Trinidadian? Are they black Dominican? Are they, are they, you know, black Cuban or Afro Cuban, you know? And, and then what, what specific things does that mean about the character? How can I embellish the character or, or, or do detail work in that specific way? But if you try to introduce, you know, maybe just a fleck, of, uh, you know, a Nigerian accent, or maybe you, you decide your character was born and raised in Brooklyn to a Jamaican family, you try to put those elements in there. They don't understand that. So on one hand, they're, they're trying to make this push to be more inclusive, but on the other hand, it's more, it's very superficial because they don't quite, you know, and, 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 I'm, and I'm saying they, and I'm not trying to be insulting to, uh, uh, to the people that are, you know, that are producing and casting all these, all these shows, but it's, it's, it's just the, the, the black characters that I go in now, or are either they're 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 either too perfect, or they just go to somebody else. Um, you know, but it's it's just uh, it's just this attitude. I think people are so afraid of portraying people in a negative light that um, you know, like I wonder if a show like The Wire would ever have been uh, would ever be produced today. Um, you know, because there's a bunch of drug dealers <laughs> and you know criminals that 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 we follow. But you know, I mean, Omar became iconic. We all we all learned who Idris Elba was because he played Stringer Bell. And it's like, wait a minute. That that guy sounds like the chimney sweep from from uh, from Mary Poppins, but he's playing this hardened uh, Baltimore killer. So you know, there's it's 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 a tough question to answer. I mean, you know, I, I mean, I've also been in situations where people have said to me, "I've been chased for roles." I was supposed to do this. Um, there was one. Um, there was a production of a of a of a play called The Secret Garden, which is based on a novel of the same name, which I highly recommend uh, yeah. to any of you if, you, if you're planning on having children or have them already, I mean, read that book to them. It's so beautiful. And um, they were doing a, a production of it, a revival that was supposed to go to Broadway. They cast me in one of the leads and they really chased me for it. And 
then I, you know, I sort of came to find out that I, they just wanted a black person to be in that lead role. One of the reasons I think was because they had a black woman who was a friend of mine who was playing the maid. Now the maid in, in this particular uh, novel and show, it's a great role, but I think they looked around and they were like, well, we got this black woman playing the maid and she, it's a comedic role and she's singing really hard. So I guess we should have a black person to play the master of the estate who's her boss. Um, so, man. you know, and yeah, yeah, well, that's what it is. And, and you know, there's, there's a point where someone said to me, like the character I was playing has a humpback and, um, and I'm not, I'm not going to get too many, uh, into too many of the details of the story, but, um, you know, but at one point, um, the, the director pulls me aside and he, and he was like, you know, cause I, I kind of was attacking it. Like, you know, uh, this is a Shakespeare reference, but Richard III, who is, you know, who is like, you know, now is the winter of our discontent. And, and the director was like, you know, you don't need to really do, uh, do all of that because we want to play with it where the, the disability is more in his head. And, and he says to me, he's like, well, I think he's a British guy. He's like, well, well I think that perhaps your disability, um, people will view your skin color as more of a disability. And, and there was a moment where I, I just what? looked at him. I, yeah, right? So I looked at him and we just looked and you, you could tell that the moment was just awkward. And this is where it, it clicked for me. I was like, okay, there were, a bunch of, there were a bunch of conversations among the creative and production teams that said like, we know what, what we can do to combat, <laughs> to combat charges of racism in this production. We'll have a black guy that... <laughs> Wow, people will, will view <laughs> as as as, as uh, disabled anyway because he's black. Like you, can you. That is ridiculous. You know, but this is but this is what I mean. Like right. these, these sort of yeah. progressive ideals, they all cross over each other. They're they're so zealous about you know portraying these uh, you know these positive portrayals of black people or whatever. But then they, you know they they end up tripping over themselves in other ways. So it's 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 actually kind of amusing to me. You said you're mad, but now it's really funny. I want to go a little bit into the fact of uh, I found you on Twitter, and when I found you initially, your username on Twitter said "notable exception" on it. So I would like to know, <laughs> and of course you don't have to share it if you want, but like, do you have a, a political affiliation and has it affected your craft in any way? Uh, no, I don't have a political affiliation. I, I left, uh, I left the democratic Party, or I deregistered from the democratic party, uh, two, two summers ago. Um, you know, Was there a particular it's, reason why you did that? Because they're trash. Uh, <laughs> well, that was that, that was just straight to the point. All right. And, well, you know, in side note, I mean, it's it's so it's so refreshing being outside of New York, uh, you know, and, and being in a place like Atlanta because you know, I mean, I've, I've been hanging out with a bunch of my younger brother's friends. You know, he's a musician and an artist, and you know, and the the level of the the level of entrepreneurship and uh, I think more heterodox thinking down here is very is very heartening to me and I and I feel like you know at least in the circles I travel in it that doesn't really exist in in, in New York but um, you know to go back to your your, your question it, it hasn't affected me yet uh, I I feel like the storm is is coming you know I, I feel like as soon as people see my Twitter account they're going to be like oh you know who is this person. Um, but my struggle has been for a long time. I mean, you know, on Facebook before I left that, which is also trash, uh, years ago, I, I posted some rant about being a frustrated liberal. And this is before the, you know, the so-called IDW, you know, start, uh, sort of launched off and before, you know, the, you know, before the culture war really, really became 
really like roared life in a huge way. And I said, there's obviously an orthodoxy that you have to follow. I mean, I'm an atheist as well. So I'm looking at this. I'm like, this looks to me like a secular religion. There's there's an orthodoxy that you have to follow. You know, it's rife with contradictions. It seems like in many ways a faith based belief. And I just can't. I can't sign on with that. And part of my issue is that as a part of my actor training, we were told that we were trained that curiosity and empathy are two of our biggest tools as actors. You know, I mean, the, the classic example is, you know, if you have to play Hitler, you have to find some kind of compassion for him. Otherwise, you can't you can't play the character. You'll, be, you'll just be judging them the whole time. So when I see a bunch of people who are calling themselves actors or artists who are exercising zero curiosity or zero empathy as far as different viewpoints, different ideas, um, different ideologies, it, it really, really bothers me. And, that, and I, I think that that sort of closed mindedness is going to destroy the industry in the long run. And for me, the impact that it, that it has had so far is that, you know, I feel like I've been living a double life. One of the paradoxes of acting is that, you know, in order to play other people, you have to really be, uh, you know, you have to really know yourself. What is it that makes you yourself angry? What is it that makes you yourself, you know, filled with lust or passion or rage or whatever? And you can, you know, use your own human experience that, that we all have, that, that's universal, you know, in service of whatever character you're playing. And, you know, I just spend years and years in these rehearsal rooms listening to people say the most asinine things and, you know, stopping rehearsals to like look at, especially after Trump was elected. They would stop rehearsal every 10 minutes to look at some New York Times headline. Did you see what Trump did now? And I'm just like, dude, I want to I just want to rehearse this fucking musical. Can we please just <laughs> learn the choreography and not talk about, you know, the, the problems of the world, which you're getting through this really skewed lens? And I, I think that, you know, and, and, you know, I've been really silent on Twitter lately. And part of the reason is just that, you know, I, I, I have that thing inside of me where I'm just like, what's going to happen if I say this? Am you know, am I going to end up on some list somewhere? Just as a matter of fact, just the other day, um, there was a performer named Chad Kimball um, who was on Broadway in a long running show called Memphis. I think he was nominated for a Tony if, if he didn't win. But um, he, you know, Governor Jay Inslee of Washington, I believe, um, you know, put down these orders where he's like, you know, you can't sing in church, basically. And, and Chad Kimball. Um, who I don't have any personal relationship with, but he tweeted like, you are not going to infringe upon my ability to sing and worship my God. And pretty much all of the industry just dragged him on Twitter. You know, I don't want to share a rehearsal room with you. You know, I, you know, you're being irresponsible. I hope you die. Yada, yada, yada. So this is, it's, there is a huge lack of, I'm going to go back to curiosity and empathy or, or the ability or even desire to understand um, where others are coming from. And, you know, these sorts of viewpoints, this narrow worldview, it's going to affect what kind of scripts get greenlit. It's going to affect what kind of projects are produced. It's going to affect what, what kind of people get hired on, on any particular project. Um, this is an industry that's heavily based on relationships. And if people think that you don't, you know, share their worldview or whatever, then, you know, you're not going to be on, on whatever team you know, for, for whatever project is being, is being cast. So I think there's a lot of people who just sit on their, who just bite their tongues and they don't say anything, even if they don't agree completely with, um, with the paradigm or, or the zeitgeist. And, you know, I have a few friends that, that I found along the way and, you know, we speak in hushed tones, you know, it's like, you're reading, 
are you reading the new Jordan Peterson book? Yeah, I'm reading it too. Yeah, it's really, cool. I, really, I really enjoy it. It's, it's really helping me a lot. It's changing my life. Yeah, okay. Yeah, back to secret, You know what I mean? A secret club, secret yeah. meetings. It's that, sad yeah. that it's it has secret, to be like that. Yeah. Though. It's sad, you know, especially in an arts industry. You know, we're supposed to be creatives. We're supposed exactly. to be looking at things from all angles. We're supposed to be tackling, you know, all these issues. That, I hear the baby. Come on, I need to <laughs> see I the it's baby. Hungry. It's uh, her name. Her name is Saya. She's not. She's not my baby. I don't. I don't. I'm completely. Uh, not my kid. <laughs> not my baby. How many? How many black men have we seen? I hope. I hope I answered your question, though. I feel like it's. Um, no, you did. Yeah, did I mean? Well, I, I, I said something. I don't know. Yeah. No. 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 Like because like question, I. You know. You know. I've seen the, the reason that I asked because I'm obviously in like the streaming and content creator sphere. And and that's something that I noticed when people were uh, coming out with their political affiliation or, or saying that they're not going to vote for Biden, for example. A lot of people were openly just being ostracized, saying like, you know, everybody unfollow this person, don't watch this person's content. Like just that really weird mob mentality. But but what's really interesting is the assumption that everyone in your circle automatically thinks like you anyway. I, I have people tell me that they were approached by other people trying to get them to disassociate themselves from me because of my affiliation or lack thereof with the Democrat side. And I'm like, just that idea that you think everybody aligns with your, your view of the world is, is bizarre to me. And I and I do agree that I think that it's going to end up poisoning this type of industry, this creative industry. I'm just based on things that I find just very minuscule, like political affiliation to me is so minuscule. I'm very, I'm very interested about what's going on in the comic book industry right now. And, um, you know, no, don't even get started with that fucking nonsense of a shit well, right now. Well, but well, it's nuts, isn't it? Because you see, and, and this is what I this is why I began to speak up more because I feel like the same thing is going to happen to the entertainment industry at large, where you have people who are being hounded out of the industry for stupid for for like Vanessa said, you know, it's I mean, it's ideological, you know, political nonsense that, that should not matter. When I mean, nobody picks up a comic book and it's like, or watches a movie and say, I wonder who the producers voted for. Like nobody, nobody exactly. is watching. Right. When, exactly. when, when I was when I was ugly crying during Avengers Endgame, you know, the third or fourth time, I was sitting there being like, oh, you know. Well, Mark Ruffalo said some things I about uh, say socialism. <laughs> you know, like I don't give a I don't give a fuck. You know what I mean? I just don't care. You know, I, I I just don't care. You know, no no one no one is buying. You know, no no one's gonna you know pick up a. a I'm thinking about diggable planets or whatever. I mean, they openly talk about reading Marx in, in, in you know in some of their songs, and I'm like, I'm not gonna be like, well, I'm not gonna listen to it, you know, because they they reference Karl Marx in one song. It's just it's so it's so ridiculous. But but what I notice in the comic book industry is that people is that the the main the main industry itself seems to be collapsing. But then you have these other people who are going outside the system and they're making money. They're hiring people. They're doing just fine. So I'm thinking so I'm thinking to myself, you can't keep alienating your audiences. Who are our customers? That's the thing about it. You know, you you can't continue to insult and denigrate half your audience base and expect them to stick around. You can't expect them. You, you can't you can't keep injecting your activism. into. That's the thing now. It's more activism than it is art. And they're not really telling stories as much as they are, you know, preaching to people. And it's like, well, if people want to be preached to, then they will go to church. They don't want to go to the movies or, you know, or go to the theater or, or you know, and, and or watch TV and see these kinds of things. And my, my fear is that 
you know, I see people all the time who are saying, you know, I don't watch TV anymore. I don't go to the movies. You know, I just watching this. I stopped watching that. You see, you know, all these franchises that are losing money or, or viewership, Star Trek, Star Wars, Doctor Who, you know, these shows are alienating their fan bases. And I, and I feel like, you know, there, there's going to be some, there has to be some sort of collapse or a bubble. I mean, someone made the great point is that, you know, can could our industry even sustain itself without uh, without support from the Chinese market at this point? Is there enough domestic support from from Americans to be able to uphold the industry? And I just don't know if that's true right now. And um, it just doesn't have to be that way. It's funny that you you say that you mentioned that like how these industries and franchises who like alienate their fans. And we have the perfect example with uh, if you look at the Charlie's Angels Full Throttle movie that came out, <laughs> she deliberately said. This movie is not for men. This is not a man movie. But then no men should men be watching this movie. For not when the movies, when, yeah, when it when it failed and sucked, when the movie was a dog shit movie. I watched it. And I was like, this movie fucking is trash. Like all it was pushing was like, man bad, man bad, man bad. It's like I didn't want to see man bad. I want to see action. Like I don't like going yeah. to watch a movie and see see real life issues going on because like I try to get away from that. Like Black Panther, Black Panther, good movie, but. I didn't call it the best movie because like, I didn't want to see them talk about modern day problems. Like I don't give a fuck what's going on in my hood because I live in the hood and I see it every day. Now mm-hmm. you got a main villain. His whole thing was you guys not helping out black people who are suffering in, uh, in America and like the modern world is like, yeah. Cause we kind of don't fuck with that shit. I don't <laughs> yeah. care about this problem. I, I care about seeing black Panther fight a super villain. I don't need black Panther to be fighting a woke ass person. That's what it was. Killmonger was woke and he came over there and started messing with other people. And like, it's so annoying that, you know, Dr. Who is failing because they keep kind of catered to these, these people who constantly crying about things. They're crying about lack of representation. Why I'm not, this doesn't, because this doesn't fit my, my ideology. So I'm not going to watch it. When you have the fans saying, well, just let them do what they want. This, they're the creators, they're the directors. Let them produce and direct and write how they want. We, the fans, will like it. A perfect example, look at the Sonic movie. When the Sonic movie first released, everybody was like, this shit is horrible. Like, we would not watch this movie. They said, stop, redo it. Look, Sonic did amazing. Did amazing because they listened to the fans. When you listen to your fans, the people who are actually consuming your, your product, you're going to get your money. The Mandalorian, another perfect example. People complain about, oh, this, the female characters have breastplate armor and like, it shows their curves. It's like, oh, yeah, it's been like that since the animated series. What are you fucking talking about? They have like, boobs. Let them make this shit. <laughs> like, they, well, they, but they don't know what they're talking about. These people never know what they're talking about. That's what's so frustrating to me because like, you know, you go back to Black Panther as an example. It's like, you know, or Captain Marvel. Here's the first, Oof. you know, XXX to do this or whatever. And it's like, dude, have we like, forgotten? No, it's not. Have we forgotten Wesley Snipes, and who was one of the hugest action Everybody. stars in the late 90s and early 2000s? And, he, and he's an amazing actor, by the way. You know, have on top you of all of that. about Meteor Man? Meteor mm. Man. Blank Man. Or blank, I was going to say Blank Man, but blank. I was like, I don't know about Blank Man. Blank Man was great. <laughs> it, doesn't <laughs> it doesn't matter. But here's the thing. Say what you want about Blank Man could have been a, the, a spoof movie or whatever. It was still a... A, a black man growing up in an area where he was like, I don't feel safe. Mm-hmm. I hate it here. I have intelligence and I'm made, being made fun of because I'm smart. So I'm going to use my, my intelligence and my love of comics to save my own neighborhood. Meteor Man. Wow, yeah. Grow up in a damaged area. He was a principal or a teacher and he was getting beat up and picked on by his students. And he was tired. Got the powers and changed this area around. Blade. 
black vampire killing white vampires. How could you not love that movie if you're so against white people being this stuff? Look, and you know, it's just so crazy. But then they cry and cry and say they want these these representations in the movies and comics, but don't buy it. Yeah. yeah. People yeah, yeah. complain about do oh we want this kind of character, we want that kind of character. Here's that character now. Oh, the the comic books sales fail. The the products it just fails. But this is what you guys wanted. Don't cater to the people because they're crying. They're trying you, to appeal to an to, audience that don't, yes, that, that are not the really the consumers. I mean, when you say that it's attacking, like you know, the comic book industry, you know, it's going. I think every industry is. It's just like eventually going to happen. We see it. Video games, video game industry. It's that's becoming more woke too. And then you see it with comics, and then you just see it with entertainment in general. And it's it's exhausting to see. I mean, I played the Spider Man game, and I saw a random BLM mural just trying to get a costume. And I was just like, wow, why? <laughs> like, why? That's so, that's so weird to And me, his dad know, is just... a cop, which is even funnier. <laughs> like, oh. Yeah. Did they, did well, they leave that part out? That his dad was a cop that died? Yeah. Did they leave that part? I mean, like, it like, was in the first game, but still, like. Well, you know, and this goes, you know, this goes back to, into, you know, listening to people who are complaining and, and uh, you know, Eric Weinstein has this great concept called the, the gated institutional narrative or, or the gin. And it's all these it's all these different, you know, it's it's these media outlets and these other elites who are just having conversations with each other, basically. And they're not really um, they're not really including, you know, the, the regular people. And I, and I see it in this industry where. You know, you have what's called a critic's darling, for instance, where, you know, a show like and I never watched it, but uh, a show like Watchmen, for instance, which, you know, I read about it and I was like, I'm not reading. I'm not watching this because I, I remember reading the original uh, Watchmen series, which, you know, kind of taught me how to read comics in a way. And it, it's just I'm like, you're, you're, you're catering, you're creating the show and catering to an audience of people that is very, very small. And but they don't realize that it's very, very small because they're inside the gym and they're speaking to each other. And, you know, the way I try to explain to people and, and it's, it's tough because I think that you're some kind of weird conspiracy theorist if you bring this, this kind of thing up. But it's like, OK, there's a small cluster of people. How many people do you know become media personalities, become famous journalists, become famous athletes, singers, actors? Uh, you know, how many people do you know become college professors? And you have this small cluster of people that are generating so much of the conversation. And, you know, it, whether it be on Twitter or Facebook or in the pages of Variety or Slate or Salon or the New York Times or any of these other outlets, it's a small cluster of people that have an outsized uh, reach. And but this small cluster of people is highly concentrated and it's full of, you know, these these activists, I guess you guess you could say, that are doing the loudest crime. So then the, the, the rest of the gen reacts and they say, well, okay, we have to generate whatever content or material these people want because this is where the culture is going. But they don't understand that the, the culture is being driven by this small cluster of people. Now, you know, when you leave, a, you know, the bubble of a New York City, for instance, you come, you know, whenever I travel out of it and I'm just down by more regular people, regular people just, they're, they're not, they don't care about this stuff. They're either apathetic or it's weird to them or they just want to have a good time and, and just, and, and see a good story. And I think that's what's being lost. I think these people really think that because, you know, Stephen Colbert or Trevor Noah or all these people are, are saying certain things about society, that that's 
how it is. It's like, well, no, only 20% of the population is even on Twitter anyway. No, it's just, it's very specific demographics that are on Twitter. And yet they're driving so much of the cultural conversation and, and that cultural milieu or whatever it is bubbles up into the entertainment industry. And I think there's a distortion uh, in how, on what people are really, really wanting from their entertainment now. And I think, um, you know, I mean, even something like Quibi, for instance, that the, the new platform that, that failed miserably, you know, they tried to have, I mean, I think it's a step in the direction of the industry trying to recognize how people are consuming content now. Right. But, you know, at the same time, it's like it, people rejected it and people just didn't watch it. And I think it says a lot when you have these huge productions that are going on on a platform like Quibi, you know, you have big name actors and people getting, <laughs> and again, the gym is elevating people for, you know, award consideration for shows on Quibi. But I think people are saying, well, I have my phone. I'd rather just watch a PewDiePie video or a gothics video or, you know, subtweet this and, you know, you know, or scroll through Twitter. That's what I'm going to do with my phone. You know, I'm going to watch this YouTuber talk about things that's unfiltered, uncensored, so to speak, you know, and as opposed to just this high this high budget production thing. You know, I, if I want that, I'll go and watch an actual series or I'll, or I'll go to the movies. I don't want, you know, I, I just think that there's a, there's a huge disconnect between, you know, where people, people in general are actually going and what, and what these activists that are in the industry, these, these various industries want. You know, there's, there's just going to be a bubble. I think it's going to pop eventually. And uh, people are just going to be like, no, I'm not watching this crap anymore. It doesn't, it doesn't appeal to me. But I, what I will watch is this person playing a let's play of this random 80s game that, that, you know, that I haven't heard of, you know, there's, there's so many more options now. So I don't think we can really afford to just to be, to keep alienating people like this the way that we have been. Right. Do you think it's ever going to like, like go away? Or do you think eventually all the, the, the media and directors are going to say, I'm just done with this. Like if you look at like Quentin Tarantino, like he just constantly just makes what he feels he is right. His movies are a little bit controversial because you know, you get a whole bunch of white actors saying the N word and people are just like, well, that's how it was back. And if you want your movie to be more legit, you gotta play this role. And like, well, this I is mean, would anything change? Do you think, do you, my main, the main question is, do you think maybe down the line is going to go back to where it's just like, just cater to our actual fans? Stop listening to these people who are saying, oh, well, why X, Y, Z? I'm just going to listen to people who say, I'm going to watch a movie because you know what I like. Well, I think that this is what I was getting at before. I think the, I don't think that's necessarily going away just because it's the kind of paradigm, a worldview or ideology, the kind of ideas that you're talking about. They're so pervasive um, in the industry proper. What I think what I think is going to happen, what I hope happened again, I, I referenced the comic book industry again. I think there's going to be a bunch of people who are going to just kind of go their own way and say, you know, we're going to go to Kickstarter or Indiegogo and we're going to raise money for our own projects. You know, it, it, the way that, for instance, alternative media is really undermining and, and, and taking the thunder out of, you know, what we call, I guess, traditional or legacy media. I think Hotep Jesus actually said, said this on, on Subtweet, you know, which I agree with. The, the future is going to be content creation. Like in the golden age of Hollywood, you had, you know, these studios who they contracted actors and their lives were very tightly controlled, but they got a guaranteed salary. And they had, you know, publicity departments to help clean up the actors' messes. And so, you know, none, none of their uh, lurid stories, you know, or... <laughs> Or, you know, the fact that Rock Hudson 
was gay or whatever. Like none of that would, would make its way into the papers. Now, of course, we have social media and all access to all these stars. And, you know, with a lot of these people, I think to myself, well, if they weren't in a movie right now, I really wouldn't care if they had an Instagram or not. And my attitude is that fame now, the, the value of fame uh, has plummeted because it used to be where, you know, fame was for the glamorous, for these people that were cut off, you know, or elevated above society and, and protected in a way. But now, I mean, a tweet can make you famous. We have you know, mediocre looking Instagram models who have millions of followers, you know, for no other reason than that they, they you know, they can do squats, you know, with their ass in front of the camera. So, you know, it, so it, I, it takes a lot felt, to do those squats, right? She, I mean, that's content. What, stop simping, bro. So, <laughs> I, hope she sees, I hope she sees this, bro. But like, she will. She will see it. She will. But, uh, but you know, but it's, but I think that what's happening is that I've long felt that the movie star or the era of the movie star is dead. And, you know, the franchises are the star now as opposed to the individual actors. And I think what's going on now is that people are following, you know, they're going to follow a, a gothics. So they're going to follow a... Um, you know, a, a Marcus Brownlee, they're going to follow a PewDiePie, they're going to follow, you know, these different personalities. And I think that's what's going to happen um, is that individuals will say, I'm going to create my own projects outside of this system because this, this, the system as it exists right now is simply too uh, restrictive. It's too, it's too narrow. It's too, it's too ideologically rigid. I mean, one of my favorite movies of all time is It's a Wonderful Life. You want to talk about me ugly crying? That movie will get me. But Frank Capra, who wrote and directed the movie, was a conservative Republican. And I didn't know that until a few years ago. But, you know, it's I mean, it's a movie that opens with a bunch of angels talking to each other. The, the, one of the main characters in the film is a guardian angel. There's a huge sort of Christian element underneath the film. And I'm an atheist, but I love that movie. So it doesn't matter what, what people's ideological framework or, or, or underpinnings are. If the story is good, people will gravitate toward it. And I think that the more people understand that, the more people will just kind of break off and, you know, from the industry and see, like, I don't think they're going the right way and create their own projects. The only issue, of course, I think will be um, the, um, the performers, the various unions, which, you know, stop me if you heard this one before, the unions might be an issue. Um, but, I mean, outside of that, um, I, I, to answer your question, I, mean, I, I just don't think that it's going away partly because of the sort of people that are drawn to uh, the arts in general or to the performing arts in particular and the culture of the industry uh, as, as a whole. But again, I just think that people are going to break off similar to what comics are doing and musicians as well. You know, they're going to find other avenues via the internet to uh, distribute their works and they're going to find audiences. They may not be, they may not become millionaires, uh, but I think they'll be able to make a good living just you know, I mean, I'm thinking to myself, you know, podcasts and a blog and, you know, my own projects or performance based YouTube channel, you know, with uh, people who are willing to, to donate or uh, or, you know, patronize me uh, or, or commission new works or whatever, you know, because we can do that now in a way that we couldn't uh, 20 years ago. So yeah. I think that's where it's going. Uh, I hope that's where it goes, because I think there's a lot of people and I think it's a part of a bigger cultural malaise that, that I see that, you know, even the Marvel movies, which I love, I mean, they're they're reviving stories that are decades old anyway. So there's, there's not very much that's new that's being, that's being done. I think a lot of people feel it. And I think it's just going to be up to independent content creators to really, um, move us uh, in a different direction. So I got a, I got a question for you unrelated to acting and politics and all that stuff. I remember, uh -oh. I remember seeing you tweet, uh, you were tweeting at some of the same folks that I find myself tweeting at. And it's usually these, you know, blue check mark individuals 
who tend oh, to yeah. have a big uh, a, a big position when it comes to like critical race theory and like the overly woke like uh, race ideology. I, I believe there's one individual that you were debating her on with, uh, I think it was when the comment in terms of like the Cubans are not real Latinos or something of that nature. I wanted to know, what do you, th what do you think about critical race theory in general, or do you have opinion on it? Do, do you find, like, what, what is your view on that? I believe the individual you were talking about is Nicole Hannah-Jones, uh, who is uh, one of one of my favorite people uh, on, <laughs> on, on the internet. I'm sure I'm one of hers. Um, you know, but it's, I think the people that are pushing um, this ideology, it, first of all, they, I don't think they really understand what it is that they're that they are pushing. And again, I think I think it was Hotep Jesus that brought this person up, but uh, uh, Manning Johnson, who wrote a book called uh, Color, Communism and Common Sense. Um, you know, he, you can find a speech of him online and he says some, a lot of the same things that he says about the NAACP back in the, was it the 30s, the 40s? Um, to me, still apply to a lot of these um, so-called black activists. I think Glenn Laurie the other day called them people with three names. I'm like, it's kind of funny. They, they do mostly have three names, like Nicole Hannah-Jones, uh, Melissa Harris-Perry, Michael Eric Dyson. It's all these same kind of people. And I think that they're dangerous because they are on a crusade, which again, I think is quasi-religious, and they, they won't be swayed from it because they've been told all their lives that the world is a certain way. And I think what is rarely discussed is that these people actually have a huge financial incentive for the world to be as as divided and as messed up as it is. I mean, I think one of the ironies of someone like Miss Hannah Jones is that she's being uh, uh, elevated and boosted by the very same white establishment that she claims to, uh, to rail against. Um, you know, or, or an Ibram X. Kendi or, or whoever. I mean, these people are benefiting from from these institutions that they want to tear down. So knowing that people work from incentive or, or respond to incentives, it just seems quite odd to me that people would be entrusting these individuals, these blue check market individuals, these critical race uh, pushers or whatever, to solve the problem because so much of their, their financial well-being and so much of their affluence and so much of their careers bank on there being a problem. So... I just, I, I feel like I have more faith in people who are saying, okay, look, we have to start where we are. You know, we have these disparities, uh, you know, w w as far as achievement, um, educationally uh, or professionally, um, what can the people do uh, to, to solve those problems? And I feel like the, the people who are most, uh, the most ardent proponents of critical race theory, for instance, or you know, I guess I guess a progressive worldview in general, um, are loath to be, because part of their issue is that they see society as the problem and not people themselves. Even though people make up a society, um, their whole focus is on changing the, the society, but and looking at people as collectives, not as individuals. And I'm like, well, you know, you have to start with the individual because we're the people that have control over our actions. And and I think that what they're pushing it allows people to languish in learning and helplessness. And there was a there was a point that I made a decision. This was back in 2007, where I mentioned this earlier. I said, you know, I'm not going to let myself use my race as a crutch for everything that goes wrong in my life. And I'm going to view myself as a human being before I view myself as a demographic. And if someone else has a problem with that, they could be they could be a Nazi or a Klansman, or they could be some woke white liberal who's arguing with me about who, who's, who's flabbergasted that I don't think that he's racist. This is a true story, by the way. This actually happened. Someone was trying to convince me that they're like, you're, 
you don't think that I'm racist? I'm like, why are you so, why are you trying to convince me that you're racist? Like, why are you so, why are you so invested in this idea that- That's so <laughs> odd, dude. It's so <laughs> weird. But that's what I he mean. to be they're, racist. He wanted so it. He's like, he, mm-hmm. like he, he was shocked. He was just shocked by this. And, but you know, I, I just, my whole thought about critical race theory, I mean, it's, it's, it's under that umbrella of, I mean, can we, can we use the M word this Marxist kind of worldview and ideology that that's really not about helping black people. It's about using black people as cudgels to accomplish some other ends. And I don't think that these people really understand, uh, really understand that. And it doesn't make you some kind of right wing conspiracy theorist. It doesn't make you some kind of, um, you know, tinfoil hat wearer. It's just, it's just an observation of, you know, how these ideas that they're pushing have been were generated in previous eras and seeing what the parallels are. And that's what we're concerned about. Uh, you know, when we rail about these things, it's not that we don't want to help black people. It's that we think that what they are doing is causing more harm uh, than, than good. And, um, you know, I, I don't, I don't quite know how to stop these people other than, you know, I mean, argumentation might work, but I think, <laughs> I think either, either ignorance or just ridicule is going to be the best way. Or, you know, James Lindsay said this, I messaged him, uh, you know, months ago when everything was kind of blowing up and he said, you know, it's going to be artists and comedians that will have to kind of carry things forward because, you know, that's where you have your satirists, you have your people who are able to tap into people's emotions and change minds that way. And so that's what I mean. I think there's going to be independent content creators and you know established comedians are also kind of carrying the torch the way forward that are going to have to change the culture i think the the one thing that kind of irritates me is the hypocrisy that a lot of people who push this critical race thing uh they do it and from what i've seen they they get a lot of support for it nobody questions them it's just like let them do it but then someone on the other spectrum that's like all right let's talk about self-accountability let's talk about perseverance let's talk about like believing in yourself or something like that that is the thing that's frowned upon which is really bothersome to me yeah you're anti-black for thinking like that right? yeah for well, having self-accountability I mean, here's an even big i mean here's one of the things that you know i just i had to I had to deregister from the Democrats because I feel like they're pushing a lot of this stuff. I mean, when you have a demographic where, you know, something like heart disease is one of the number one killers, even beyond, you know, violence or homicide or anything like that. How can you in good conscience, especially in the time of COVID, still say that body positivity or fat acceptance is a good idea when black people are dying from diabetes? I have high blood pressure. It runs in my family. I've been able to control it thanks to health and nutrition. But, you know, I see these articles, you know, if you're a man, uh, lifts weights at the gym. He could be a right winger, and it's just like they're, they're creating they're 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 creating all of these sort of barriers and parameters that 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 you exist inside of. But you know, th- but they're pushing these ideas that are directly contradictory to the health and well being of Black people. I mean, that that whole that that poster that the that the uh, Smithsonian put out, the African American Museum from yep. the Smithsonian. If you remember, you know about whiteness. It's, it's things about like you know rugged individualism, punctuality, discipline, hard work. These are elements of whiteness, and I'm like, this is some of the most racist garbage I've ever seen in my entire fucking life. And, and it used to be where it was only, you know, when you, when I was a kid in a, in a more working slash poor um, upbringing, you know, it would be the other black kids who would say, Oh, you know, Oh, you're doing your schoolwork, you know, or you, you, you dress a certain way, you're trying to be white, yep. whatever. But yeah. now it's, it's filtered up into these educated classes where, you know, I'm, I'm sitting there arguing with black people who have PhDs about how striving for financial success and is, is just striving for whiteness. I mean, talk to a Nigerian businessman and see how he feels about that, or a Japanese businessman. I mean, it's 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 the strangest thing that the people that have, and I think people really need to 
take a look back and say, who are these kinds of people who are pushing these ideas that are deliberately leading to the, not only the economic, but the spiritual immiseration of black people. If you're talking about, you know, public health, you know, being fat is not a good idea. And we, I mean, how black people have the best athletes, but the, like the worst health outcomes on the planet it doesn't make any sense. If you're talking about STI infections among black women, it's, it's super sky high. I'm a pro-choice individual, but uh, abortion rates are also super sky high. I mean, this is, this is according to the CDC, you know? So but what do you see coming from, I guess I'll call it the left or whatever. It's, you know, it's sex positivity, which, you know, there, there shouldn't be shame attached to sex, but there's reasons why, you know, there's social stigmas around certain, you know, attitudes and, and, um, and activities, you know, th- there's th- the broader point that I'm making is that the people that are getting the most public support and the most money, uh, you know, they're, they're receiving awards. I mean, Ta-Nehisi Coates is another one. You know, these people are actually making money off of the immiseration of black people and, and putting forth ideas that will, I think, contribute to their further suffering. I think it's a sign of a sick culture when you have people like like us who are saying, you know, you should really read more and you should go to the gym and take care of yourself. And you should you should have a family that, you know, not until you're established that you can take care of. And, you know, you should watch out for, your, for yourself and your community. And, and, you know, it's just like stuff like discipline or showing up on time and being punctual, but they're looked at as negative things, or you're trying to be white if you talk about it. I mean, it's it's very, there, there's some kind of a spiritual sickness or, uh, or some kind of emotional sickness, you know, that, that is really, is really bothersome to me. And I think it's so deeply in, in, embedded and so deeply ingrained. I'm not sure how you, how you get out of that, how you get out of that ditch, to be honest. It's just, it just seems to be so, there, there's so much investment now in the idea of black people as helpless uh, uh, victims yeah. uh, that, um, you know, outside of being your own best personal example that, that people can follow, I don't know, you know, what, what else you do to combat that. So it's funny that you brought up those points, you know, with us being like the best athletes, but then we have such horrible stats when it comes to like diseases and whatnot. With fitness with you, was it something that you just kind of always believed in or was it something more involved with your craft that you developed more into? Because I see on Broadway, I, I don't know, I kind of feel like actors in that space kind of more of like an athletic build from what i notice when people are in that in, in so yeah I, I mean i work backwards uh so as far as broadway i mean a lot of people don't understand the the amount of energy it takes out of you to do to do a show eight times a week whether it's hamlet or it's hamilton um you know like a, the, the typical broadway chorus i mean they're singing and dancing um, it takes a lot of, of energy to, to sing and, you know, obviously dancing and you're in these theaters of, you know, a thousand seats, you know, whatever. And you, you have to have the chops and the stamina and, and the physical conditioning to be able to night, night after night, you know, sometimes two show days. I mean, the, the show that I did on, on Broadway, you know, I mean, it was, it was, it was about two hours of just nonstop, you know, you're, you're, you're projecting your voice over laughter. You know, you have these really dramatic moments where you have to be loud and you have to be heard. You're physically exerting yourself in a myriad of ways. And so you need, you need rest, you need relaxation, you need to take care of yourself. And so that's why when you see Broadway performers, yeah, they are in really good shape because they have to be, it's a part of their job. You can't, you can't not be in shape and do eight shows a week. I know from the side, it's like, well, you know, just you're working nights and weekends and you know, what's the big deal. But, you're using all of yourself from your head to your toes to make these shows work and to entertain people. And, um, it's a lot of work. Uh, but you know, for me, fitness, um, it was kind of weird because I, you know, I had a really, I had a really bad breakup 
And, uh, you know, right when I was coming out of grad school and it was one of those things where I was like, um, Oh, you know, am I going to Hello. hold on? <laughs> <laughs> Don't you come at me sideways. I turned on my, my battery saver. That was not a good idea, but, uh, but, uh, you know, I had this really, this really bad breakup and, um, I mean, this was 2009. I just gotten out of grad school, and it was in the middle of the of the recession. And um, you know, it, it was just it was a really hard time. And then I ended up booking this um, job at a theater in Kansas City. And um, at the time, I was like, you know, I've I've never really been ripped. Uh, I mean, I was always I was, I was always a really skinny kid, and um, and just kind of lanky and tall. And so I bought, uh, so LL Cool J has a book called The Platinum Workout. And, uh, and you know, I, I recommend it to everybody. It's really readable. It's got a lot of great information in it. And um, I just started hitting the gym and, and, and training weights. And after a few weeks, I started seeing these changes. And I was like, wow. But on top of all of that, you know, and again, this goes back to what I was saying before about high blood pressure, which is uh, when I was 25, I was prescribed medication for high blood pressure. And, and, you know, my mother took the same thing. My grandmother took the same thing. And I asked the doctor point blank, uh, is, it, is it normal for somebody my age to be prescribed uh, this medication? And she said no. So after 10 years of, of working out and, and, you know, eating to match my goals, you know, my levels are normal now. And it wasn't only that 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 shift in terms of my health, but it was also a, a mindset shift that, that occurred as well. And, you know, I think this also helped feed into my political transformation because now there's this idea that, you know, men who are into fitness are, are toxifying their masculinity. And the more I found that I leaned into my masculinity, A, the happier I was as a person, and B, the more I worked as an actor. So, you know, it, it just became, it's sort of, and the more attention I got from women, which is kind of funny, you know, as, as opposed, you know, I spent all this time deluded that they were, you know, these non-superficial uh, creatures that were just better than us. Uh, <laughs> but no, you're, you're scumbags just like the rest of us, Vanessa. Damn. <laughs> wow. All right. But that's, but that's, but that's the human condition though. You know what I mean? Like that's, that's just who we are and you know my current job i see it as well you know just men and women how we get along how we how we interact and you know and you know you're never going to suppress that you know that's why i have an issue with a lot of these covid restrictions but that's another whole of the podcast but it's um so so the fitness thing uh, you know to, to come back to your original question it, it was sort of organic but the the benefits that i began to see from it um you know, just were, were, were so much, were such that I just, I just kept going with it. And, um, you know, and, and it's changed my life, uh, for the better in a lot of ways. So it's, it's really, it's really irritating to me when I, when I see people who are like, well, you know, you know being fat is okay. And it's like, we know it's not, we know it's not. And especially for black people that we know it's not, it's, it's one thing to say you shouldn't shame people for, for being fat because you don't know what the story is behind that. Right. There, there could be a, a variety of stories behind why that person is overweight. And some of them are really tragic and, and sad, you know, so don't insult people that way. But to tell me that I'm a, that I'm a bad person for encouraging other people to get, to get thin. I mean, look what happened to the reaction to Adele. People were just like, you know, um, guys like telling her, like congratulating her on losing weight is fat shaming. And it's like, no, it's not. <laughs> that whole situation got me a little upset because it's like, people don't understand, like, as you get older, 
your body starts to change. And when doctors are telling you like, listen, you're overweight and you're almost at the level of being obese, you should really change up your diet. It's seen as like, oh my God, how dare doctors tell me I'm I'm obese and not love me for my body. And for Adele to make changes like that, she saw that something was wrong with her health and she needed to make the change. The same thing for that other actress, the woman who was in um, Pitch Perfect. Oh, Rebel Wilson. Uh, is that oh. her name? Yeah, she, yeah, she yeah. started losing weight too. She started losing weight too because she was like my health. Like at a certain at a certain age point. <laughs> oh, what the heck was that? The, the, what the hell? Something, something fell down. So I'm, I'm listening. Like, Let me. <laughs> at, a, at a certain age point, it's just like your body just starts to change and it can't do the same things. Like we're all getting older. Like me, I can't do like a lot of things I used to do at 20, 25. So imagine me being a 40 year old guy out of shape. It's it's like going up the stairs, I get winded. Like, I don't want that. Like I like. What can't you do it's, since it's, you were 25? Bend over apparently. Like my, my bones don't listen. If, if you had the audio, every time I move my arm, I rotate a cuff. I don't want to hear that shit because this is what you were doing in the mosh pit at TwitchCon. You were doing this shit. Yeah. So that's a yeah. lie. First of all, I just saw but Clifton's arm is, and that thing was bulging. You're telling me you can't be like that now? Yeah. I could be like that. You see, yeah. that? You see that? That's what I could do. But the thing is, what I'm saying is like. Stop you, objectifying me, you guys. So, so, so here's the thing. So we shame people for, we're shaming people for changing their lives, their health. What what is going on with the world when when somebody sits there and goes, okay, I I like my body, I'm I'm I don't feel comfortable right now, and I have a lot of hot health issues. Like yes, I love my body, but I have health issues. Let me make changes to my diet, get fit. Let me do it for me. Why is it automatically a problem for the rest of the world? Look at Jonah Hill. He went from a like a funny fat guy, then he got skinny. Everybody's like he's not funny anymore because he was fat. He was funnier, fatter. Then he got big again, and people are like. Oh, he just did that because of this. Now he's just like, I don't fucking care. Like, yeah. what do you want from these people? Like, they're only funny because they're fat. And if they're saying they're only funny because they're fat, that's fucked up. Well, it, again, it's one of these things where, you know, they advocate for a certain thing. But in, but in their advocacy, they show that they're how bigoted they actually are. It's like, it's, it's. I mean, maybe making it too big of a too big a thing of it, but just just the idea that some, that someone is no longer funny because they're fat. They're really saying that they find fat people hilarious. Because See, I know, right? You oh, just wow. reversed it. See, you probably just yeah, people like, watching it probably just blew their minds. They probably just calculating everything. They're like, oh. <laughs> they're be like, no. I mean, you, do, you think anybody said, do you think anybody sitting at home being like Chris Rock? He's too skinny to be hilarious. No one, <laughs> yeah. no one has ever done that. But but the people who are but the people who are complaining about other you know actors losing weight is like, come on, man, just. You're, you're revealing your own your own narrow-mindedness and your own your own bigotry you know so just, like just look at fat it. joe fat joe lost weight because he was like yo i i saw what happened to big pun big pun was heavy set and he died from that like mm -hmm. fat joe was like yo i don't want that to be for me in the latino community we eat a lot of fucking high like a lot of foods or fatty foods and stuff what's what's joe's like, name now is it just joe I mean, yeah. Shut up. Oh just my Joe. God. No, because that's, that, that's, that's, that's the singer. That's, that's the R&B singer. We, can't, we, oh have to, we can't use the same name. I see. I see. Yeah, it's okay. just average Joe now. Just oh, average wait, Joe. You can't even use that now. It's, <laughs> average, it's average Joe. <laughs> Occasionally rap Joe. I don't know. Like. Um, <laughs> okay. Uh, <laughs> shut up. <laughs> So uh, we've been recording for about an hour, uh, so we're going to wrap it up. We're going to start to wrap it up. But I did have a question for you as an actor. What is your stance on uh, Cuomo's uh, Emmy nomination? 
<laughs> well, thank you for another episode of Subtweet. <laughs> here, I mean, here. So here's the. I think it's. I think it's disgusting. I think it's despicable, and I think it's. It's dare I say deplorable. Any other D words you can think to throw in there. The the destruction of New York's. I mean, you know, and I know I know Abella disagrees, but the maybe I'm looking at it through um, the lens of just the industry because I feel like a lot of them have just sat back and said we want to be bailed out and we want money from people who that we've despised and alienated for the past five years. And to see someone like Andrew Cuomo, who, to give credit where it's due, I mean, he's an extremely shrewd uh, politician. And I think anybody, in contrast to the chaos that is Donald Trump, anyone who's able to sound somewhat collected and somewhat calm, you know, is is going to uh, is going to look better by comparison. That said, um, I've I've been astonished by the by the fawning coverage of Andrew Cuomo. I've been astonished that he's able to lie and mislead uh, uh, people. And one of the reasons that, that I knew I had to leave New York, I saw this press conference where this reporter asked him a very reasonable question about the economy of the city. And he snapped on her, on her and went on this tirade about how uh, one life, uh, you know, death is worse than a bad economy. As if having a bad economy will lead to less deaths. You know what I mean? And, and he was just like, you know, you, you, want, you want a job? Go, go become an essential worker. Go get a job. What, what, how many nurses do you know can get a job just becoming a nurse in like inside, inside of a week? How many mechanics can just, you know, go and get a certification in a few days? Just, oh, get a job. You know what I mean? Like, and so I, I found his reaction to this perfectly reasonable question to be so unhinged and so indicative of this rigid moral framework that I said, this man will justify, this is back in May, I said, this man will justify anything because, you know, in his quest to quote unquote, save a life, which is ironic because he tweets out every day, the people that are dying from COVID. So whatever measures you're taking, they aren't even working anyway. So you, your so your most basic edict of like, well, I'm I'm going to save a life isn't even working. But I said, you know, he, he will justify uh, any action that he takes because he's saying I'm trying to save a life. And I said that's dangerous thinking to me. I need to leave. And you know, people aren't aren't asking really questions because he's a Democrat and New York City is overrun, uh, is, is overwhelmingly blue. Why is why is no one asking questions about why we had these multi-million dollar facilities that were converted in Brooklyn and Queens to handle a hospital overflow? They were barely used before they were before they were dismantled. We had this hospital ship which was barely used before it was sent away. You know, but yet at the same time we're increasing these restrictions. Uh, you know, to slow the spread or not, you know, so the medical systems are, aren't, isn't overwhelmed. But then he has an interview um, a month ago where he's talking to CNN and he says, our hospital systems were never overwhelmed. Our emergency hospitals were never overwhelmed. He says it unequivocally as he's lying about, you know, his nursing home order, which led to the deaths of thousands of people. And, and, you know, and I don't really like the, the sort of right wing framing of, you know, he deliberately sent people into nursing homes to kill them because that's just too, that's, that's a little, I don't like Cuomo, but that's a little too diabolical for my tastes. But I still want to know what was the justification behind uh, behind uh, making this executive order, which was then scrubbed from your website, by the way. You know, so 
what was the justification for that? And then, you know, you see, you hear this leaked phone call. He's talking to these, uh, these rabbis, these Jewish leaders in the community where he's saying, this is not a nuanced response. This is a fear driven response. So he's, so you look at his Twitter account, he is ratcheting up the very fear that he is using uh, to, to justify his continued imposition of, of these strict measures. So the fact that He's handled this so badly. I mean, at the beginning of the pandemic, he said unequivocally that the city was prepared. Um, you know, and I guess he was wrong about that. I don't know. Um, so the idea that he is being filleted and selling a book, no less, um, for all wow. of his failures. Uh, and, you know, and, and he's being vaunted. And so now my industry wants to give him a fucking Emmy Award for this. Um, I think it's disgusting. And, and, and it's just an, an example to me of how these otherwise mediocre people. I mean, he's, he's very shrewd. Again, he's very intelligent. So I'm, I, I got to give him that, you know, as a politician, they're awarding him for his, for his television press conferences, which, during which he said things like, this is a European virus. Motherfucker, we know it's not. We know where the virus came from. And he, and he keeps saying this lie. It's a European, like we don't, I mean, and, and again, this, this is how, this is how shrewd they are because technically there was a mutation of the virus that didn't, that then came to the city. Yeah. But we know it originated all in China and it's not racist to say, to say that any more than it's racist to say that the, that the Ebola virus is an African virus. It's unbelievable. The, the level of the, the, the level of willful self-imposed ignorance that people are able to, to generate in order to, to fillet their own or venerate their own heroes because they have a Democrat after their name. This dude mismanaged this entire, uh, I mean, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm just a guy with internet, with internet access, but I was able in January to say, wait a minute, there's a virus coming. Let me get prepared. Let me stock up on food. By the time I left in June, I, I still had canned goods and, you know, and gloves and masks that I bought in February. So if I'm just some guy, you know, how come our administration, the Cuomo administration, the de Blasio administration, who, who, are, who are out telling people to go to the movies and to ride the subway, by the way, no one ever talks about that. So, you know, they, they helped spread the infection. No one wants to talk about that. So that's to answer your original question. It's the idea that this person is receiving an Emmy Award. To me, it's indicative of the ideological rot inside the industry. It's indicative of the these willful these willful blinders people have on their inability to see uh beyond part party affiliation you know it's 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 completely reasonable you know we understand that you that you don't like donald trump that's fine but to but to throw your support behind a party which features mayors and democrats which looked the other way when their cities were being destroyed or which looked the other way while people were, were being sent to nursing homes and dying i mean i think you know, you really, really have to take a moment to examine yourself and, and figure out what your priorities really are, what your principles really are. I mean, I've been saying for weeks now, I think many of these people, their principles are shaped by whatever headlines they happen to read that fucking day. Yeah. There is no consistency in what they believe, you know, and, you know, just just the idea that someone like Cuomo is 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 pretty much is, is he became anti-vax this year. He was like, we're not looking at this uh this uh, vaccine, if it's coming from this administration, I'm like, dude, this is what so-called anti-vaxxers have been saying like for years now. They're saying like we have issues with the, with with the safety and all this other stuff, but now it's okay to be anti-vax in the mainstream as long as you're anti-Trump. There's so many things that that just they're just mind they're, they're mind-boggling to me that people can't see the contradictions or they don't care about them or you know or again just because it's 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 a tribalistic game. It's like okay, yeah, Trump. Drop the ball in a lot of ways, but 
you know, so did just about every other leader in the Western world when you're talking about uh, confronting COVID. And Andrew Cuomo is no different. You know, you can give him the benefit of the doubt and say like, well, you know, this is an unprecedented situation and New York City poses some very specific challenges in terms of containing a virus, um, obviously. But to pretend that he's some kind of a hero, to me, it just it just really calls into question, you know, I think we have very different definitions uh, of what a hero is and uh, Cuomo is not it. Yeah. And the I, fact that he's that the fact that he's receiving an Emmy for it is is so it's infuriating to me, and I think it's 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 disgusting. I I found it funny that like you know he said that uh oh become a essential worker, and so you could stay employed. And when Just you like said that. they they feel like essential workers are immune, I am a, considered an essential worker because I work in the construction field as I'm I'm a general contractor in safety and construction, and the amount of the amount of hoops the construction industry has to get jump through to even stay open. Like people don't see like that. We have to apply for permits. We have to apply for special um, uh, business affirmation so we can stay open. Then we have to deal with the department of buildings who makes up all these rules and everything that they don't even know half, half the time they, they don't tell to all their workers. And you know, it's funny because here's, here's, here's the, here's the, the freaking, uh, the hypocrisy of everything. So the Department of Building put out rules saying you should have a, a plan, a COVID action plan. So, you know, uh, screenings to come to the job site, you got to take your temperature, tracking guys and all this lot of stuff, you know. But when the DOB inspector comes in the job site, you can't take the temperature. They're exempt from you taking the temperature. So, yes, because I tried to take my, I watched the medic try to take the DOB inspector temperature. He goes, we're <laughs> exempt from that. We're, we're exempt. It's like, Oh, so if I was to say this about this worker coming in, you shut my whole job site down, right? Huh. So, but you're exempt, you fucking idiots. And if, they, wow. if we didn't do this, if we didn't do this, you'll give us a, a million dollar fine or whatever and shut us down. Because right now, New York City, how they're getting their money back is from fines and tickets. And nobody's seeing that. You know how many times I've gotten a parking ticket for being parked somewhere where I've always parked before? They're like, oh, you're getting a ticket. Like, I never got a ticket here. Oh, well. But at the end of the day, all the shit that they're doing and setting up, it's not helping, it's just hurting people. I get you want to keep New York busy and get money and revenue coming back in. I understand that. But at the same time, a lot of people are dying. A lot of people still have to go to work. You're not stopping landlords from collecting rent. Credit card collectors aren't stopping collecting. All the best they're doing is there's no late fees. Where are we supposed to get money from? Well, I mean, you have to talk to the leadership. I mean, that's again, that's what's funny. You know, you see Cuomo, who later who later on in the year admits that, what, I think he said 50% of, of their taxes come from the rich people that are fleeing the city. But then Bill de Blasio says, we're not going to. I mean, this man wanted to be the president, for God's sake. Bill de Blasio was like, uh, you know, we're not going to. Uh, listen to a, what a bunch of wealthy people and, and millionaires want. It's like, okay, so part of the, part of the, if you want to call them benefits of living in New York City, is there, I mean, there are a bunch of social programs. You know, I myself as an actor have been on unemployment many times, you know? I mean, where, do, where does the money for these programs come from? If you want to be a sanctuary city, you know, where, how, where's the money to, you know, support those kinds of, to, to, for the resources to support, you know, these kinds of policies? And um, but they're chasing it's like they're, they're chasing any sort of revenue stream that they can out of the city. Um, and I just I, I see no I see no justification for it. It's, it's just very strange that they seem hell bent on destroying what really is one of the greatest cities in the world. I mean, I'm, I'm not one of those people who thinks that, you know, New York City is dead. It'll be gone. Uh, forever. I mean, I know we, we talked a little bit about this, you know, when, when I sat down. But, you know, I mean, it'll 
it's New York City, so it, it, I think it will bounce back. It's just a matter of how long that's going to take. And, you know, in, until Bill de Blasio leaves, he, I mean, he's a lame duck mayor. That's the worst thing about it is that he'll suffer no political ramifications uh, for anything he's doing right now because he's not up for re-election. Cuomo, on the other hand, who, you know, gave an interview where he said, you know, these measures could last for another year. He said that, uh, you know, conveniently in time for his re-election, by the way. If, if I were to return to New York, I mean, it's going to be at least a year because... I think these people need to be out of office. I mean, this, this includes the city council, you know, the, the, the DAs, I mean, all this stuff. I mean, there's so much, um, there's so much rot and, you know, and you were talking about, you know, all the, the red tape you have to go through. I mean, there, there's so many things in the city, uh, you know, I mean, they're turning it into San Francisco and nobody, <laughs> nobody wants that, you know? So it, it's, uh, it, it's I don't know I mean, I'm speechless about it. It's, just, it's so it's it's when you see a place that you've lived for 15 years and it's been such a huge part of your life and you see how it's being destroyed and on top of that you know going back to this Emmy Award you see how you know you see how your colleagues are rooting for the destruction of of your city and your industry. Um, you know I mean I mean it's arguable to me that that Broadway and theater are essential businesses for New York City. You know, it's unique what? in that way. I think so. In terms of the revenue that it brings in, the businesses that, that it brings in, if you're in a theater district in Times Square, all these restaurants, these souvenirs and gift shops, the tourism that Broadway attracts, the restaurants that, you know, p- patrons and actors themselves go and visit, uh, you know, there, there's... I think there's an argument to be made about that in terms of the makeup of the city. And, you know, people just want to, instead of sitting back and saying, you know, bail us out, there's an argument to be made for like, well, you know, with safety measures, okay, we can we can get back to work and make this thing happen. But no, instead they they sat back and just allowed their industry to be killed uh, from from the outside. And you know, it's 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 uh, I won't I won't say cowardice to me, but it's something along those something along those lines. You know, it just it just um, so it's, it's the one-two punch of like the city being destroyed as well as the industry that many consider is in, is integral to to that city. Woo, well, I'm glad I don't live in New York. That's all I'm going to say. Even though people seem <laughs> to think right. Rhode Island is a part of New York. Yay! Hey. Wow, thanks. thanks, guys. Send me a postcard. Uh, 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 I'm going to cough on it too and send it to you. Thank oh. you. <laughs> Thank you so much. Um, it's nice. Is it? I've never been. I like it. I like it. It's, it's definitely a chocolate city. And I appreciate that. You know, I mean, we didn't really get into it, but it's, you know, the, the, the level of the, the level of camaraderie, but I see, you know, young and old black people, you know, entrepreneurs and, you know, who are just artists, professionals who are going after it to go get it, you know, whether they're illustrators or musicians, um, you know, they're, they're hustling and trying to make something happen. You know, they're small business owners, they're professionals and, and, you know, and they help people out, you know, that that's, that's, that's what's so great uh, for me to see. So when I see these other people who are, you know, I guess you call them race hustlers or whatever, who are saying all these bad things about, you know, the inability of black people to strive. I'm like, dude, the Atlant, the Atlantans are like, they're, they're killing it right now. It's really inspiring to see. It's, it's, it's fun to be around. So it's, but it's not as, it's not as great as New York, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm going to go have to go visit Atlanta someday whenever, you know, six feet, Distance is not a requirement. But in any case, let's wrap it up. Clifton, thank you so much for being on this podcast. I want you to go ahead and let everyone know where they can find you. But I'm going to ask, you can either do it as your normal self or at the beginning of the show, you started to do a little bit of an impersonation of Morgan Freeman. So I'm just going to put it out there that I really (laughs) thought that was cool. But let everyone know where they can find you. 
Well, if you're going to put me on the spot, uh, <laughs> I can be. It's it's. Oh God, I can't. <laughs> like, just... when, I, when I'm when I'm stoned, I do amazing impressions. <laughs> just, just so you know, right? so, that's that's how you. But that's how you know I'm sober right now. But um, if 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 you want to find me, I can be found at uh, Clifton A Duncan uh, on Twitter. I can also be found at Clifton Duncan online at uh, Instagram. I also have a YouTube channel, which I haven't really done much yet, but I want to build uh, on that as well. And um, right now, that that is where you can find me, although stay tuned for uh, future projects, because as I said before, uh, the future is going to be in the hands of the people that decide that they're not going to be a part of the system anymore and, and create their own things. So be on the lookout for, uh, for projects uh, driven by myself. Awesome, yes. awesome. Nice, nice. We definitely will. And it was a Appreciate pleasure it. having you on the show. Thank, Thank you, so, you much. so much, Clifton. And uh, remember, everyone, uh, make sure to hit that follow button, hit subscribe wherever you're listening to this too, and we will see you next time. Bye. <laughs> All right. Goodbye. Bye. <laughs>